Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Hi, welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. And today's guest is an author uh, by the name of Daniel Smith. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Great to have you on. Uh, I saw your book being publicised quite a, a while ago now. Uh, obviously, keep an eye on Amazon for anything to do with the Notorious Cray Brothers, obviously because of my link. And you've released a book called A Very British Cover-Up, The Peer and the Gangster. And of course, anyone who knows anything to do with the Crays or knows a, a lot about the Cray twin story will know that in 1964, the Sunday Mirror ran a front-page story headlined Peer and a Gangster. Yard Inquiry. Now, while the article withheld the name of the subjects, the newspaper reported that the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police had ordered an investigation into an alleged homosexual relationship between a household name from the House of Lords and a leading figure in the London underworld. Lord Boothby, of course, was the Conservative Lord in question, and Ronnie Cray was the infamous gangster. And that is the subject of the uh, subject matter of the book that Daniel's written. So, Daniel, um, let's before we look into that book, let's go back to you know how you became an author. We've had a few authors on the show. Um, I interviewed Wensley Clarkson uh, only last week. Good friend of mine, Wensley, who's done a lot of uh, a lot of fantastic crime books, and people can look look up look up that interview on the channel if they want. We had Steve Richards on from Newcastle, who's done a few about the uh, the Northeast gangsters. So this one's a completely different slam. But where you know where did your 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 taste and enjoyment for writing come from? It's been a bit of a, a bit of a winding path, really. Um, I wrote my first book about I guess eleven or twelve years ago now. It was about Sherlock Holmes. It's a very different subject matter, um, and I've I've written about thirty odd non-fiction books, all sorts of subjects, um, lots of biographies, a bit of history, um, some economics, even some philosophy, all sorts of things. So. I, I have lots of interests and sometimes I just follow whatever takes my fancy really um, and this one came about um, so I grew up on the edge of South London um, and I knew about the craze when I was growing up and I read um, some of the, the you know the Charlie Cray's book and all those kind of things when I was in my teens so I was familiar with the craze but about 10 years ago I was asked to write um, a history of the second world war dig for victory campaign so again a completely different sort of subject but that was really my route to this book bizarrely so i knew about the craze i didn't know anything about bob boothby i was born in the 70s so you know he didn't really come into my come on my radar at all really um and i was researching this book about the second world war dig for victory campaign and i, I came across his name had a little bit of an investigation into his background because he was at the, the Ministry of Food during the war so he had some involvement in that campaign and it was while I was doing that that I got these first kind of whispers that he had this bizarre connection to the craze in the 60s and it just seemed so odd and out of keeping with all the other stuff that I was reading about him at that time but then I kept an eye on things, um, researched more, found out about his long-term affair with Harold Macmillan's wife um, got the impression that yeah they, there was more to this man than you know dig for victory anyway yeah. um it was a fascinating period wasn't it i mean the government had already had its it, it, you know its first big scandal anyway because the profumo affair um which mm. was explosive case anyone who you know hasn't read about that or seen anything about it um you know google it it's uh, you know christine keeler and uh, the minister and uh, again another fascinating case so 60s uh, but they'd already yeah. Big, big explosive case all over the newspapers and its scandal is never, never good for, for, for politicians. But then this, this article breaking in 1964, um, it was, you know, it was a strange article. It, it, it just, you know, it grasped the, the, you know, the public and of course everybody was wanting to know who it was, you know, who was the gangster, who was, who was, who was the politician. So, you know, t you know, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and you know, and, and what, what effect that had on, on the government and Boothby. Yeah, well, I think and not only had Profumo only happened the year before, but the year before that as well, there'd been another scandal, the John Vassell spy scandal. 
um, where there's a kind of mid-ranking civil servant who'd been posted out in Moscow and uh, he was gay and he'd basically been caught in a classic Soviet honey trap and they got photos of him at a party and, and as a result blackmailed him into uh, spying for them. So he'd been spying um, for the basically throughout the whole of the 50s. So the government really was coming off the back of those two scandals over the previous two years. Um, and and the, the net effect of that was Profumo had seen the end of Macmillan's time as prime minister um, and Douglas Hume had come in to replace him. And he was meant to be the steadying hand that was going to take the Conservatives through to the next election, which was due at the end of 64. And so they just really didn't want another scandal. <clears throat> and the Sunday Mirror, uh, the chief crime reporter there was a guy called Norman Lucas and he knew everybody he knew everybody in the Met and he knew everybody on the wrong side of the law as well and he picked up whispers from from his Met informants that the craze had been under surveillance since the beginning of 64 and he'd been and they'd been spotted basically hanging out with Boothby a lot so he knew that there was a story there um he didn't they didn't name either Cray or Boothby in that original story uh but there was it, it wasn't long everybody in Westminster and everybody on Fleet Street pretty much knew uh that it was Boothby and uh and Cray and at the time you know in this day and age Ronnie everyone knows who Ronnie Cray is and fewer and fewer people knew <laughs> know who Lord Boothby is but at the time it was very much the other way around Lord Boothby was on the TV and the radio all the time he was sort of the first celebrity television politician, really. Um, Churchill used to call him the MP for television um, in a quite a scathing way. So these were, Boothby was a huge name. And, and as it emerged over the, the following weeks that uh, he, was, he was involved and implicated in all of this, it really did uh, have a big impact, not only among the public, but even more so because uh, the public still were kept in the dark as the true identity, even though there were the rumours. But within within the Conservatives, first of all, there, there was a real panic that this was going to be the end of not only Douglas Hume's time as Prime Minister, but it, you know possibly the, the party out of government for years to come, because they just had too many of these scandals, one on top of the other. People, people sitting at home um, would probably want to know how on earth somebody as high up in the Conservative Party and government would, would come across somebody like Ronnie Cray. But of course, you know, the seeds were sown, I believe, the year earlier. It was 1963, I think it was, when uh, Lord Boothby started an affair with an East End cat burglar called Leslie Holt. Yeah, well, that, he, he seems to have been the, the route in. There, there was, um, it's quite possible that, Boothby and Leslie Holt had been known to each other maybe even earlier than that, as, as early as 1960, according to some uh, some reports. But it's difficult to know exactly when they met. But yeah, basically, Holt was this cat burglar. Uh, he was a, sometimes a driver for the craze as well. Uh, they lived in the same flats in Hackney for a while. So um, Holt himself said that he introduced Boothby to the craze. Uh, other people suggest that the craze had probably clocked Boothby hanging around with Holt and, and had their eye on him before that anyway. Um, but yeah, because because of this relationship, um, that's that's how the, the association began. Yeah, I mean, the craze were very smart in the sense that they had, had started off in a, a snooker club in, in Mile End, you know, which they'd acquired off the previous owner. Um, and then, you know, they built up a, an empire of spielers. And, and, and essentially, these spielers and clubs that people would, you know, they're, they're probably envisaging, you know, huge nightclubs as we see now. But these, a lot of these bars and clubs that, that, that were open were actually in, 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 in upstairs flats of, of maybe businesses or, or even people's houses. And, 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 you know, there weren't pubs and clubs as, as such as we would think of now. So, but what they did was they, they obviously were making money out of those particular rackets. They were also running protection rackets. They had, as John Pearson called it in, in his book, 
you know, a profession of violence. They would go across and, you know, essentially speak to somebody who maybe carried out a robbery or a burglary. Um, and essentially they would demand their money. They, they were thieves' ponces, if you like. I think that's what's really developed over the last, you know, over the last 25, 30 years. You know, the truth has come out from a lot of other villains that the careers weren't particularly good at crime, but they were very good at violence. And they had this this vice-like grip over the over the East End. But they moved into the West End, and this was where the association really came with you know with celebrities and with um with politicians because they got into the the gambling side of things the you know gambling laws were were only recently changed in in, in that period and you know they they were essentially allowed to open casinos there was a link with with you know certain american mafioso and you know with these gambling clubs came high profile celebrities but also came high profile politicians and this is where a lot of these introductions took place yeah and boothby was a lifelong gambling addict really um he, he was always in debt you know he came from a very uh, well-to-do background but he was you know eaten and oxford educated and he appeared to be of the elite, but he always had money problems he, because he was such a ferocious gambler. And, and he lived a high life, you know, gambler, drinker, um, probably lots of other recreational substances as well over the years, um, and, and a, a pretty exotic um, private life. So, you know, I think he was drawn to that, the, the kind of, um, the, the, certainly the West End clubs. But I think also, you know, he, he kind of, he quite liked in fact during the war he talked about going to the east end when the east end was suffering the blitz and um meeting the people there and and he he liked being around ordinary normal earthy people and as time went on he also liked being around criminals it turned out so you know the craze in lots of ways had they just gave so much that appealed to him and i think the, the twins as well and particularly ronnie had this idea that if they could befriend people like Boothby um, and kind of get into that establishment setup, the establishment always looked after each other. And if they could get a part of that, then they would also have some form of protection. And in many ways, they were right, at least for several years. Yeah, normally one misdemeanor on one side of the house, uh, you know, on the conservative side of the house would mean that the Labour side of the house would uh, would be able to attack them and, and, and certainly gain mm. major advantage in politics. But unfortunately for Labour, uh, Tom Dryberg, who was a senior Labour MP, was also homosexual and also associated with the Cray Twins. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was so that the story came out in the Sunday Mirror, which was essentially a, a Labour supporting paper. And um, there had been various things going on at the time. So senior members of the editorial staff were on holiday and that kind of stuff. So they didn't go through the normal processes they probably would have done of checking a story with their political allies before running with it. But they printed it thinking Harold Wilson and the Labour Party were going to love this and this would be like the final nail in the coffin of the Conservatives. But immediately it set alarm bells ringing there because, like you say, Dryberg, who'd, who'd actually been uh, chairman of the Labour Party as, as recently as 58 so only six years earlier uh was up to his neck in it with boothby as well and and indeed there were some reports um that suggested that dryberg had been the one who actually introduced boothby to the greys and i think it almost certainly was through leslie holt that the association began but um certainly dryberg was was socializing with them he he was friends with the theater director and film director joan littlewood he was based in east london um, he'd been friends with her for many, many years, um, but she worked with Barbara Windsor and um, there's the story goes that there was a film um, that Barbara Windsor was starring in that Jane Littlewood directed um, and they wanted to use a nightclub for one of the scenes. And so uh, uh, Barbara Windsor contacted the craze who she knew socially and that's how that um, connection began. And then via Joan Littlewood, Tom Driver came into that circle as well. And yeah, he, he was, if anything, even more reckless in his life in general than Boothby, which was quite an achievement, really. Yeah, the film you're talking about, of course, is Sparrows Can't Sing, uh, 
originally a 1960s play. And you're right, it was directed by Joan Littlewood uh, from a story by Stephen Lewis, I think. But it's still available on DVD. So anybody who's interested in uh, seeing what the inside of one of the craze nightclubs used to look like can uh, can certainly find that out. And uh, there, there's a couple of cameo roles by some of the firm members on there, which uh, which I find fascinating. So we haven't really touched on touched on it yet. I'm, I'm sure you touch on it in the book. Um, we know now we've established that Ronnie Cray and Tom Dryberg and Bob Boothby were friends. Um, you know whether it was via uh, Littlewood or Holt. Um, you know that's that's open to debate. But what was the, you know what was the arrangement? What was Ronnie Cray providing for these MPs? So essentially, he was uh, hosting them at parties where young men and and some of them very young as in late late teens and and into their early 20s uh were invited um and according to who you listen to either invited cordially or told ronnie wants you at the party make sure you're there um and basically these these young lads were providing sexual favors to the two the two politicians amongst many other uh guests including uh, other well-known people by all accounts, although it's it's very difficult to get the names or anybody to go on the record with the names of anyone else at those parties. But yeah, so it was quite a, a, a bleak picture, particularly the, the aspect of coercion, this sort of idea that there were people there who, you know, young young men who probably didn't want to say no to Ronnie Cray anyway, and then were presented by these figures of the establishment in their 60s by this stage people that they might have recognized on the tv if they if they you know recognize them at all but certainly people who were seemingly extremely powerful much much richer than they were making demands on them that it was very difficult to refuse really the Crays, of course have moved out of the family home in valence road and had uh located or relocated to cedra court which is where a lot of these parties were were held yeah it was known as the Blue Lagoon. Uh, Ron's, um, you know, Ron's, Ron's, you know, apartment, if you like, or flat, where 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 he would entertain these parties, and um, you know, he lived obviously, you know, next to Reg in a in a separate apartment as well. So it was, um, yeah. I mean, when you read about it and hear about it, it's uh, it is quite unnerving. Did your research find anything, you know, to link them with, you know, anything? more illegal i mean you know that we see a lot of rumors and, and a lot of people insinuating that the craze were involved in trafficking you know underage children or underage boys did your research find anything out in that? um did it did i find anything concrete that i could put in the book no i heard a lot of rumors um i i did a lot of appeals through the media um all sorts of media local media in east london up in scotland where boothby was an mp um, there's obviously been lots of historical allegations about things that went on in Jersey. And I know the Craze and Boothby were both in Jersey at various points. Um, but in terms of anybody going on the record, no. Um, one, one really interesting source, uh, never knew Boothby, but he knew Dryberg in the 70s. Um, and he, this guy basically had ended up working on what was known as the meat rack in Piccadilly Circus, which was essentially uh, where the rent boys around that area all, all uh, congregated. And he, um, he seemed to doubt whether uh, Dryberg uh, was particularly uh, keen on much younger than late teens. However, there was also evidence, um, there was the independent inquiry into child sex abuse last year and there was a statement from MI5 given at that point um, where uh, they were told in 1981 so after Dryberg had died uh, some I think he died in 76 so that's five years afterwards uh, that um, there had been allegations that they were aware of that Dryberg was interested in in younger um, people even than late teens um, and there was also a police officer who um, sadly died. He made, made some allegations in 2015 that uh, the driver had been under Met surveillance and there had been escapees from Felton Borstal, as it then was, who'd been trapped, basically ending up in his flat. And several of them had made allegations 
and there'd been a move to uh, get some uh, criminal action going, but it was rejected by the Director of Public Prosecutions at the time. So that's as firm as it goes on Dryberg. And in fact, on Boothby, um, the evidence was even less. It seems like he, he liked the, 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 the sort of late teens upwards. That was his taste. Um, but I never, never came across anything formal other than rumours, which are often secondhand rumours, that uh, he was involved in anything other than that. And then in terms of the craze, because obviously the craze themselves, have, you know, it's been suggested, were um, involved with younger people. <sighs> Nobody went on record, put it that way. So. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard countless stories and rumours over the years. I think a lot of it's there really just to tarnish the legend. I've never spoken to anybody who certainly suggested that they were trafficking, you know, underage, you know, boys uh, in particular. Um, I've heard rumours that they'd slept together, which again is, is ludicrous. And, and I think it's also ludicrous to suggest that, um, you know, that, that Reg would assault Francis or or abuse Francis. I think um, I think what became clear in time as, as they served the sentences, we always knew that Ron was homosexual. I think, you know, Reg was, you know, Reg was a twin. And I think I think the difference between Ron and Reg was that you know Ron was openly gay, whereas Reg was more of a closet. He was always battling his his sexual demon, you know. And uh, you know he spent a lot of his life battling himself, but also having to control Ron, who was of course mentally ill. So it's uh, it's it's a fascinating you know it's a fascinating story, one which I think which which will never be repeated. But um, mm. so many little different tangents you could go off on. I mean the Boothby one was interesting as well. Again, I'm not sure whether you cover it in the book, but um, you know. A lot of stories about his perversions. I mean, you know, you've already said he was having an affair with a woman. So, I mean, you would presume that you know, Lord Boothby was probably bisexual. Um, but, yeah. But, but he had a lot of perversions. And I think, you know, without going into it too graphically, he used to lie under a, t uh, used to lie under a glass table in Cedra Court, um, you know, whilst masturbating, um, whilst young lads were, you know, defecating above him. You know, um, that that was one of the stories that was quite common in, you know, quite common in the career circles and amongst, you know, yeah. members. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I've heard those stories um, and I, I think there's, there's a good chance that they're credible and true. Um, some of those ones you'll never know by the by the nature of a story like this. You know, you're you're filling in the gap sometimes because there's not documented records obviously of this sort of stuff um but yeah and certainly boothby was he had voracious appetites he was certainly bisexual he had um he, his cousin was a the journalist ludovic kennedy the journalist and writer and he reckoned that he'd fathered at least three children out of wedlock uh there was a strong rumor for many many years which continues to this day that he was actually the father of sarah mcmillan who was Harold Macmillan's daughter. Um, I, I'm slightly sceptical about that because of other information that I've received, but, but Harold Macmillan himself didn't know for sure. that He uh, visited Boothby in his flat late on in their life and basically asked him outright, and Boothby said, no, I'm absolutely not her father. But, um, you know, the, the, all of those sorts of mysteries will continue. And then bizarrely, just a few years after the Boothby saga, he ended up marrying a very glamorous Sardinian woman who was um, 34 years younger than him. And they had a, I can't remember how long they were married for, near, near enough 20 years, which was a supposedly a very happy marriage until Boothby died in 1986. So, you know, he, he was he was into everything. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. He uh, he lived he lived life to the full. Uh, of that, there's no doubt. Uh, one of the stories that I got from um, from Charlie Cray, um, you know, before he died, was that uh, you know that the the Crays did have a lot of incriminating uh, photographs and cinefilm. Of course, cinefilm was still relatively new back then, but uh, the Crays did have a cine camera. Um, you know, we we you know placed the uh, the footage on our documentary, the Crays. Uh, when the, the day the craze came to town, it uh, was actual film footage, which has been seen on other documentaries where we put the, you know, the, the, the full footage on there. But the rumours were abound for years that the craze actually had a, a get out of jail free card. So a lot of these parties that were taking place at Cedra Court were filmed for posterity, shall we say, or mm. taken of people in incriminating positions. However, 
when the when the doors got kicked in in 1968 and the twins and the, the brother and the firm were arrested um the woman who uh, actually had the uh, you know a lot of this incriminating stuff was was actually one of the uh, relatives to the craze and they were told to get rid of it i.e move it to another place um right in a quick phone call from someone in prison and taken it upon themselves to rather than move it from one place to another they stuck it into a bin in the backyard and burnt it and a lot of this incriminating stuff footage photographs etc disappeared for forever and and with that the you know the opportunity the craze had hoped to get them out get themselves you know either a lesser sentence or out of prison altogether by you know by embarrassing all of these you know highbrow people went up in flames so i mean did you ever hear about them them filming stuff or anything like that or yeah um, yeah i mean that was part of the problem and when when the scandal first blew up there were rumors going around you know the, the cabinet the conservative cabinet were having secret meetings about this and they they heard whispers that there were more incriminating photos to be had um clearly they have never turned up so either it's they never existed or like you say they were disposed of along the way um but it also occurs to me that you to an extent you don't need that evidence if you have the threat that you might have it <laughs> as well. And certainly I think that worked for a number of years for, for Boothby and Dryberg, um, that they lived under this kind of not knowing for sure quite what evidence there was out there of them. And yeah, to an extent, I'd be surprised if there wasn't documentation going on because, you know, Ronnie liked to document things in photographs, you know, when they were, he liked to be seen with people and and make use of photographs. So I'd be surprised if there wasn't any evidence uh, along the way, but it is this mystery of where it's gone. Um, there was a rumour that Leslie Holt had suggested he'd put some stuff away with a solicitor at one point. Um, but again, it's never come to light. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, if it's still out there and it's discovered one day, then be uh, uh, yeah. I'd love to see it. Put it that way. Me too. Well, uh, to, to a degree, anyway. I think I'd like somebody else to see it first, and then. Well, yeah, yeah, that might be the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know who was in them. <laughs> Me too. Um, getting back to the getting back to the the story, then uh, you know, get back to where we started. Obviously, this story had come about about Boothby's Underworld Associations. I think it had come. Mm of the Sunday Express originally, which of course is a con you know conservative supporting paper, um, but then as you quite rightly said, a Labour supporting paper, the Sunday Mirror broke it, um, and I think the, you know although they decided not to name the MP or the gangster, I think it was German, German magazine Stern, I think which eventually That's broke, right, yeah. broke the name. So so yeah, now we've got the situation. It's all over the front page of the Daily Mirror. Everyone's asking who it is, and and you know most people you know in the know do know who it is. Um, but then it, it it suddenly hits a brick wall because neither of the main mm. political parties really have an interest in publicising this. So Cecil King, who was the owner of the of the paper, then comes under pressure from the leader leadership, doesn't he, to drop the matter? Yeah, yeah, and it, in the end, makes this grovelling apology to Boothby. Um, and it was specifically to Boothby rather than than Ronnie, um, and paid him forty thousand pounds out of court, which would be somewhere in the region of eight hundred thousand a million today. Um, so it was a huge, huge payout. Um, and really, there were a couple of things that really undermined the story. First of all, the Sunday Mirror had the the makings of the story, but they didn't have the detail right. So it was this assertion that. There, that there was a definite relationship between Cray and Boothby, which they just could not prove. And and a lot of the evidence suggests never existed, that they were not um, sexually interested in each other at all. But, you know, Ronnie Cray was quite dismissive of, of Boothby as a, as a potential, you know, suitor. Um, and Boothby was, you know, he was in his mid-60s by then. He wasn't, he, he was no Adonis by that stage of life. Um, so the Sunday Mirror didn't have the story quite right. Um, and also very early on, before any of the names had been mentioned, the Met Police Commissioner, Chief Commissioner, made a public statement in which he basically undermined the whole thing, said there was no such inquiry and um, that they would not be discussing the matter any further and, and 
basically gave the impression that the Sunday Mirror was barking up the wrong tree entirely, when really they were perhaps they were not barking up entirely the wrong tree, but they they were maybe on on the wrong side of the tree, and they needed to peer around the corner a bit more and 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 get their details a little bit further in line. But really, once the the chief commissioner had made his statement, it, it kind of made it impossible for them to carry on. Uh, with the story, they they ran a front page the following week, but that was the end of it. Um, and and then the political parties became involved. So you had the Conservatives who were having their discussions, and they seem to have adopted a line that uh, they wanted to know what the newspapers had, not just the Sunday Mirror, but there were suggestions the Mirror was sharing evidence with other papers, and they so they put on they engage the police really to go and put pressure on various newspaper editors which was not really legal i mean the the met should not be taking orders from a political party even if they're in government to be uh, pressurizing the media um but it also had another side side to it because two years earlier at, uh, after the john vassal spy scandal uh, there'd been a public inquiry and there were two journalists who um, refused to reveal their sources for stories they'd written about the case then. And they were imprisoned. And those were the t- first two journalists in British history who had gone to jail for not revealing their sources. So um, the, all of those people who were in the cabinet at the time would have known that and known what sort of pressure they were bringing to bear on Fleet Street. But they didn't want to do much to help Boothby directly. I think they knew there was they didn't want to go picking around his life too much. And so he asked uh, one of the members of the cabinet if they could advise on legal advice for him, you know, provide him with contacts for any lawyers. And they basically came back and said no. So they were going to keep silent on the story and hope that it went away. But they weren't really going to do anything to directly help Boothby. And that's where then you had this very strange situation where the Labour Party came in and uh, there was uh, a chap called um, Arnold Goodman, who later became Lord Goodman, who was essentially Harold Wilson's chief legal advisor um, at the time and then during his early years in government. And Gerald Gardner, who would become um, Lord Chancellor under Harold Wilson by the end of the year. Um, And... Astonishingly, astonishingly for these two kind of labour heavyweights, they went and uh, searched Boothby out, took on his case, aggressively fought it. They told Boothby to uh, make a statement to the Times, and he wrote a letter denying it all flatly. And Arnold Goodman was really the, the greatest media lawyer of his age, and, and he, he uh, contacted the Mirror um, people directly and, and brought his pressure to bear. And that was it for the story. Just it disappeared and not only disappeared, but then Boothby got this 40,000. Although how, how much of that he kept and how much of it found its way to the twins, we'll, uh, we, we'll never know for sure either. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, the craze might not have benefited financially, but they certainly benefited in other ways because other news, newspapers became less willing to cover the craze. Mm. And of course, that continued for the next few years. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's one of the uh, one of the sort of unpredictable aspects of this, I think, for the politicians at the time. You know, the craze was starting to come onto the public radar, but only very gently at that time. Um, but then by the end of the decade, they're these major public figures. And now you've then got these politicians as well that know that they are kind of implicated in having let them get away five or six years earlier. and, and, and so yeah, I think that's another dimension to it, which, in retrospect, was was pretty serious. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, of course, the craze for for those of you who are, you know, not you know not cray aficionados, you know, went on to of course kill uh, George Cornell. Ronnie Cray walked into the Blind Beggar pub in uh, the East End of London at point blank range, shot some dead in front of witnesses. Uh, Jack the Hat. Um, who was uh, a member of the Cray firm, but who had uh, failed to carry out an order and taken payment for it, uh, was was stabbed to death at a party in Evering Road by Reggie Cray. And uh, they also helped 
uh, Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell escaped from uh, Dartmoor Prison. Um, they had him holed up, uh, you know, in the build-up to Christmas. And they were going to uh, try and get him a, a pardon from, from prison or a release date. And uh, because he became uncontrollable, um, they had it arranged for him to be uh, to be killed. And uh, Jack the Hat's body, Frank Mitchell's body, of course, had never been found. The crazed doors went in, of course, in 1969. Nipper Reed and uh, the guys from Tintagel House eventually managed to get enough people to come forward. The, the blind beggar barmaid, of course, was the key witness, um, you know, to, to come forward and, and make statements. And then eventually some of the firm uh, then turned Queen's evidence in uh, 1969. Uh, George, uh, Justice Melford Stevenson uh, sentenced the Crays to life in prison with a recommendation that they both serve 30 years and the Cray firm uh, total as well you know it hit the 100 mark for different uh, you know different sentences that were handed down so uh, you know one hell of a story and, and the book um, which we've got behind us here uh, The Peer and the Gangster is, is, a, is, is a fascinating read by, by Daniel what happened with the you know the other protagonists in the book than Daniel. Tell us first of all what happened to, to Leslie Holt, the cat burglar. So his story was pretty sad really. Um, it, you know, he's continued in in low, well, reasonably low level crime um, and he ended up dying in very mysterious circumstances in the late 70s. He was uh, ostensibly having an operation on it, on his foot and um, by, done by a Harley Street doctor um, and seemingly had an overdose of anesthetic and died but the whole thing was very mysterious including what the nature of his relationship was with the with the the doctor um there were all sorts of rumors that this doctor would tip him off about clients who he might go and burgle and all that kind of stuff and um might well have in the end felt that holt knew too much i mean there's always rumors that like with the craze 30 year sentence that there were these people who did know too much about too many establishment figures and that they were slowly taken off the scene um so yeah the whole one is another mystery and whether we'll ever get to the the bottom of it who knows um yeah lord, so he that lord boothby lord boothby he essentially got away with it um but i would say his life was was tainted you know by by it uh, until his death in 1986 and he still kept on appearing on tv and radio throughout all that time he he wrote extensively for the papers as well he married this sardinian woman and ostensibly lived out quite a happy last few years but um i i think he lived under that shadow of this secret and the fact that he never knew for sure that there wasn't this stash of evidence somewhere that was going to be produced one day that would bring his name down again and and he slowly broke off the association with the craze i think um the year the year after in 65 um when the the craze were arrested uh for the hideaway case uh he stood up in the house of lords and went against all parliamentary etiquette and made a, a, an appeal for on their behalf directly that they ought to be released on bail pending trial um which brought brought notoriety down on him by you know in terms of these fellow members of the house of lords they all thought that was an awful thing he'd done and he had he, he obviously felt under pressure to represent um for the craze over those few years but then as time went on uh, he seemed to withdraw from them to a certain extent. Uh, Dryberg, on the other hand, even into the 70s, he was still writing a prodigious number of letters to the Home Office, you know, specifically asking for better conditions and better terms on, on all sorts of issues for, for the twins. Um, so, yeah, I think both of them, both of them essentially got away with it because they both died before the story ever really came out. But they they paid a price. Paid a price. Tom Dryberg, what happened to him? So he died in seventy six, ten or twelve years later. Um, yeah, he he ended up he he had a flat in the Barbican in his later years, and he was a kind of slightly sad, lonely individual. He'd married uh, a woman uh, several years early. He had a twenty year marriage. I think they married in the mid fifties. Um, 
he never had any interest in a heterosexual relationship. So it really was a marriage for show, but it was a deeply unhappy relationship. And they, they did eventually get divorced. Um, and he, they were all sorts of sad episodes. So he took in a younger man to live with him at one stage who then ended up stealing various of his treasures from his lifetime. But he, he, um, he didn't actually have very much money by the end of his life. He'd sort of started off from a moderately wealthy background and had used up all his goodwill and good luck by the end of it. So, yeah, another slightly sad, sad end after the, the Boothby affair. During your research for the book, was there anything that really came up, um, anything exciting that came up out from, from the MI5 files or the government papers? Because as we know, a lot of the, you know, the stories surrounding the craze and other major criminals, I suppose, there's always red tape wrapped around these stories, especially if it involves you know, high-profile people who maybe you know, want to live their life out before any revelations come out. So was there anything that really sprung out that hadn't been, you know, that hadn't been covered before? Well, um, from the MI5 files, what not that much that's not in the book. I mean, for the, it really can it really prove the point that there had been this major government conspiracy yeah. um, in which you had the two prime ministers involved. Um, I did. Uh, I had another source who came to me, um, a very interesting guy who'd um, spent part of his life spying for the KGB and all this sort of stuff. He told me um, how he'd been a, a police officer in the in the late 50s and he'd ended up arresting Dryberg on one occasion for cottaging and um, Dryberg had basically been released within a couple of hours having had having put in a phone call to one of his fellow Labour colleagues which turned out was Jim Callaghan um, who was also another Prime Minister um, so I suspect Callaghan was was fairly deeply involved in the Boothby affair as well so he kind of had the three, the three prime ministers, present and future, uh, that was proved by the documentation. Um, and there's also, it's, it's not something that I can be definite about, but there was also, uh, I, I had evidence come up that Jeremy Thorpe, who obviously had his own legal problems in the 70s and he was put on trial um, for attempted murder, that uh, he might well have approached the craze um, many years earlier in the 60s uh, with the idea that they might have uh, bumped off somebody for him, which was, I found, quite an enticing story. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, there's so many different links, um, you know, over the years. I've yeah. seen so many different things thrown into this story. I mean, you know, people are legend that Cliff Richard had some kind of liaison with the craze. Well, you know, yeah, he, he was, you know, he, he sang in the clubs, but I think, you know, it's probably wider the mark that he was involved in any of this kind of shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, I again, I didn't have any evidence on that, but that's one of those ones I know. So my contact, the guy who in the 70s was working as a rent boy in Piccadilly, he spent quite a lot of time with Dryberg and he, he had some terrible experiences with various people, but he actually quite liked Dryberg and he found Dryberg an interesting, quite sympathetic character. And he reckoned that Dryberg and Boothby in the late 50s used to hang out at a club in Soho called the, the Two Eyes uh, Coffee Bar, which at that time was sort of like the centre of the rock and roll scene in the UK. So he had anybody who was coming to London and trying to make it would probably at some stage or another be on the two eye stage. And it was a, like you, you were saying, you know, these clubs were tiny, you know, they're not like the big super clubs that we think of today. These are tiny clubs. And, and so my, my contact told me that um, Boothby and Dryberg would frequent there in the fifties. And, and that was a story corroborated by uh, the bar manager, the assistant manager at the time, it took me ages to find evidence that this was this story was true, and in, in the end, I did. And you know, you kind of think, well, Boothby and Dryberg must have stuck out like a sore thumb there, but that you would have had a, pr a roll call of all these kind of people that would eventually become household names going through that club, and you can see how all those worlds just intertwined, and and some of them are, are bound to be fairly innocent acquaintanceships, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but also you can see just how these different worlds collided and clashed and how all sorts of things might have been possible. Have you seen uh, any of the, the, the career films? Just, you know, I mean, your research, I presume, you know, you, you, you know you're know you going to the MI5 files, government papers, etc. And, you know, you speak yeah. 
that contact from uh, the 1970s sounds fascinating. So, you know, have, have you watched? Did you uh, have you watched any of the films? Did you watch any of the films? Yeah, but yeah. What? Actually, my cousin, my cousin had a little cameo in the in the original the 1991. So um, I watched that when I was very very young. Um, yeah, yeah. I've seen them all. I mean, they. Yeah, I think they're really interesting from the from the point of view of this book. I've always been quite fascinated by how fleeting all references are to this the Boothby affair really and that was one of the reasons why I got I got into my head that I really wanted to write this book because it seemed to me I kind of like that clash of politics and crime really fascinates me and um I it always felt underdone in the in those films and even last year we watched you know the crown the netflix series the crown and boothby crops up in that a lot and he crops up basically as the lover of harold Macmillan's wife but there's never a mention never a mention of any of this other stuff um so yeah i it felt like a, a gap that needed a bit of filling We've got to hope that somebody somewhere, I mean, this has got, for me, it's got BBC drama written all over it. I'd like to think that eventually we might see this being, you know, dramatised because it's such a good story. It's one of those stories which you quite rightly see in the films is almost brushed under the carpet, um, mm. ignored because it's probably not got any blood or guts in it. And it's, you know, it probably doesn't interest the, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, cinema goer who, who goes and watch these kind of things. But this has got, you know, the BBC have done the Profumo scandal, they've done the train robbery, they've done so many things really well. But I think if anybody from the, you know, from the BBC uh, production department is watching this interview, get yourself onto this book because it's a, it's a fascinating story and it's one that deserves, deserves to be, you know, deserves to be dramatised. And I think with a decent budget, you, you know, you could get a bloody good actor to play Boothby, Dryberg and, and Ronnie Cray as well, you know. I think it would be a fact. Yeah. And of course it would be good for you. Good, good for book sales. And wow. Well, you know, if anyone's watching and they want to buy the rights. <laughs> yeah, but no, I agree. I, I, I do think it is. A, it's in some ways it's a, such a crazy story. I think that's been part of why it's been swept under the carpet as well. Because, you know, if you read uh, Boothby never mentioned it. He wrote lots of memoirs, never mentioned predictably any of this. But his official biographer basically dismisses it all in a page or two of his of the book as well. And that's always been the way. And, and um, I mean, I read all sorts of things researching this. So there's a conservative history um, organisation that publishes a journal that's kind of like an academic journal. Yeah. And they had an article in about Boothby a few years ago. And again, that guy, a very respected historian, basically said, there is no, there's no substance to this story. And, um, and now particularly with those MI5 papers, but not just that, you know, there's such a, a wealth of evidence that I just, it's not a tenable position to pretend anymore that, you know, this, this was not quite a major event that was swept under the carpet. And, you know, the guy at the National Archives, um, when the MI5 papers were released, I think he described it as the, the greatest um, British scandal that never was. And I, I, I kind of agree with it. It's like, you know, if it had, yeah, I mean, and of course now at auction houses, sometimes, you know, people sell you know, memorabilia, etc. And there's been numerous Boothby letters to Violet Cray and to Ronnie Cray. Mm. Balance Road appear on, on, you know, appear at these auctions. They're all genuine. So, um, you know, there's no smoke without fire. And I think the photographs are, you know, they're always a key. It's, it's like when we did the research to the Cray's coming to Newcastle for our documentary. We, uh, you know, the key, the key factor for the Cray's visit to Newcastle is there's numerous photographs of them in and around the city in nightclubs. Mm. Again, it's a fascinating story. We we put a lot of time and effort, myself and Neil Jackson from Media Arts, put a bit of time and effort into that. And we we interviewed a lot of them who have passed away now, a lot of what you would call the Geordie Mafia, who who all had a different story. Did we get the did we get the answer to it? Why they were coming up here? No, but some fascinating stories, which of course, you know, it's, it's all part of our social history on Tyneside, you know, so it's, uh, it's fascinating. I've got to ask you before, before I finish the interview, the Sherlock Holmes book, what's it about? Because uh, I've got an interest, uh, you know, like everybody, like a good detective book. Um, what, what is the Sherlock Holmes book about? Well, actually I've ended up writing four Sherlock Holmes books. So the, the first one I wrote was kind of like, almost like a reference book about all things to do with the world of Sherlock Holmes. As, as the literary figure but also like the cultural phenomenon yeah. um then i wrote uh, quite a light-hearted fun book called how to think like sherlock 
um, which I was asked to do, which sort of has lots of quizzes and mental agility kind of things in it. Um, and I've written another one called Sherlock Unlocked, which kind of looks at lesser known little stories around the world of Sherlock, but pro possibly the one that um, is most in line with what you're thinking was I published two years ago. It's called The Ard Lamont Mystery. Um, and it's about the uh, the origins of Sherlock Holmes in part, but it's about a real life um, unsolved killing uh, from Victorian Scotland. It took place in 1894, kind of when Sherlock Holmes was at his first peak of popularity. And there was a, it happened on this Scottish estate, beautiful Scottish estate, which I managed to, I spoke at a festival up there earlier, it, just before lockdown, actually. Um, it's a beautiful place. Um, but this young 20-year-old uh, um, lad from a wealthy family uh, that were basically down on their luck had been under the influence of this tutor that his father had placed him with two or three years earlier. And the tutor and the boy, no, the lad, and the uh, and a third mysterious man who was called Mr Scott, who sort of appeared one day and then disappeared the next, went out hunting one morning and uh, the lad who's called Cecil Hambra never came back. He was shot in the head. Um, and there was a huge trial at the time. And two of the key prosecution witnesses were two doctors from Edinburgh University. And they had basically also taught Conan Doyle when he was studying at the university. And, and my argument, which I think is a pretty convincing argument, was that he had based the character of Sherlock Holmes on the two of them. Um, so it's a really interesting case. So yeah, yeah, that was that was a really good fun fun one to write. And um, What's called? it's called the Ard Lamont Mystery. Um, so Ard Lamont is the estate in Scotland. Um, yeah, so that came out in 2018. And then the, actually, the, since then, I did this other one, Sherlock Unlocked, which is more like a treasury of weird facts about Sherlock Holmes and, and the world. Obviously a big fan. Obviously a big fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. When I wrote the first book, I had a a friend who's a writer. Who's, he's in his 80s now. But he said, oh, you know, now you've written one one about the about Sherlock Holmes. You'll be writing about Sherlock Holmes the rest of your life. No, no, you know, I've done my book now, but there we go. Four books later. It's become infectious writing, certainly. I mean, you've now delved into the murky world of the craze. Is, is there another craze book in you, do you think? Or do you think that was a one-off? Um, I don't know. There, there, was, there were aspects of it that, um, all sorts of things that intrigue me. Um, I'm kind of aware that there are people like you who've had these long associations where you're, you know, you had first-hand knowledge of, of the twins that I don't so sometimes I think some of those stories are probably better left to people like you to tell um but it, it certainly it's a world that fascinates me um at the moment I'm thinking the next book might not be Cray related but it might be another dodgy politician so that that might be the, the strand that I pick up from this one you've got your work cut out there you, you could be on yeah 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 there's plenty to choose from <laughs> start modern day um anyway uh here on the gangster uh is available now a fantastic book by daniel smith uh, get it on amazon uh it's through the historypress.co.uk as well i'm not sure whether buying a direct means you get a bit more um but you know it's well worth the read and um I, I think you just gathered from the interview guys and, and girls that uh you know daniel knows what he's talking about so excellent book uh well worth a read uh, buy a copy or buy somebody who would like a copy uh, now. But Daniel Smith, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much.